is an egregious abuse of democracy in the party, and you called it, quote, politically corrupt. What do you mean? Well, this leadership is a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party. Um, our members of the party deserve um, a vote. It shouldn't be taken away from them. And, you know, having strong campaigns in this leadership um, really made this an exciting race. Um, I felt with Jean Charest's candidacy, my candidacy, um, Dr. Leslie Lewis and, and Pierre all having robust campaigns, um, it really um, created a competitive leadership. And we felt that we were going to win it. We thought we had the members, memberships in, in, in the right spots. And so when I say this is politically corrupt, um, Evan, 150,000 Canadians, many for the first time joined the Conservative Party, and their, their vote has been taken away. They've been disenfranchised. That's an egregious abuse of our democracy. What is up, everybody? My name is James DeFiori, and this is Blackballed. That was Patrick Brown being interviewed by Evan Solomon on CTV about the recent, the most recent political saga that Brown has found himself at the center of. And we we started to do a part one. Uh, I called it Dismantling Patrick Brown the other day. I believe it was on Friday. And uh, I wanted to, more than just myself, sort of bring it, the audience up to speed about the inner workings of what was happening behind the scenes uh, in regards to his disqualification and the politics that may or may not have been, um, you know, that, that precipitated the disqualification. And what, what I thought would be better would be have uh, someone who uh, travels in conservative circles, someone who is involved in, in the party, either at a provincial level or the federal conservatives, just to sort of help us really unpack what's going on. I can say what I want most of the time and, and feel fine about it, but um, I am not quite as informed as our guest is today. He is a former city councillor and a former school trustee. He is now a conservative political consultant, and he works with, I believe he works with both the provincial and federal conservative parties, and his name is Rob Davis. Rob, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm good. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Um, I, I, I really wanted to have you on um, because I wanted to just sort of have it come from someone that wasn't me. Um, the The sort of the theoretical or, or or the best that you can do to unpack this situation for us, because there is not really a lot of data to go by. We know that Deb Jodwin was a longtime Patrick Brown supporter. She is the so-called yes. whistleblower in this case. Yeah. We don't know, I believe, unless something has materialized and I didn't notice it, uh, that we still don't know the name of the company that apparently uh, paid her. No. And we don't know the circumstances really that surround um, why she did what she did. Can you help us with any of that? Or is the story really that nobody can help us with any of that because of the lack of information that's being disclosed? Well, it, the first point is it's very bizarre because um, in the tradition, the whistleblower tradition is that a whistleblower is anonymous and they get protected. So it was very unusual and particularly unusual that the Conservative Party of Canada and Leoc and the uh, released the name of the person um, who was the whistleblower. So that's that's number one. It's it's a little bit peculiar, and we're not sure why that why that happened. Um, number two, uh, obviously the company involved, and 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 according to Leoc, it was a, a numbered company out of out of Brampton, Ontario, um, uh, that was involved in this payment to uh, Miss Joadin. Um, uh, hasn't been identified, so it's a little it's a little peculiar, and I don't know the name of the company, but it's a little peculiar that you would you would announce the name of the whistleblower who, in the traditional sense of the word, would have you know protection. We actually have whistleblower laws in in the federal uh, parliament that uh, protect federal employees uh, from persecution and from being outed um, if they come forward with um, 
information about wrongdoing by government. Uh, number two, the company has rights. The people who run the company have rights. Um, and LEOC and the Conservative Party of Canada are not finders of fact. It's not the court of law. Uh, it's not a place where um, evidence is presented and, and, uh, and examined and cross-examined. Uh, and they're not the ones who get to come up with a finding of fact. So because this is obviously headed for the courts, it's a very unusual circumstance. I don't think we're going to get the full picture until we see something in a courtroom, until there is some action taken by either party uh, that brings them into uh, the judicial system. Is that part of the, is that by design? You know, because no, I, if I, there is, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know that it's by design per se. I just think that it's a, it's a failing. It's a, it's an element, of, it's a vacuum in the process. Um, if we were the governing party at the time, if the conservative party was the governing party, I mean, these would be the rules that <clears throat> you would be using to select the next prime minister of Canada because ostensibly the leader of the party that's governing at the time becomes prime minister. I think there seem to be a lot of, um, I don't want to call them loopholes, but there's a lot of, there's a big vacuum in terms of the process. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're in the situation where we're in with Patrick Brown. Yeah. And we were talking a bit on the phone um, the other day and you were saying, and I agreed with you that there is no real alignment between the rules that governs parties through the Elections Act and the internal rules that govern parties, um, you know, when it comes to each party's independent internal processes. And right. that sometimes these processes can conflict and contradict each other. And then the deference would always seem to go towards whatever the inner party rules are. Is that right. fair? Yeah, that, that's fair. That's a fair assessment. I had a, I have a good friend who's a very, very involved a person who once said to me probably eight or nine years ago, she said, remember, um, Political parties are private clubs with no rules. And mm -hmm. so uh, a lot of decisions are based on whim. What does the party leader want? What does the party president want? Um, what does the party uh, want uh, to have happen? And sometimes those, those decisions are void of logic or presumably some you know, logic on the ground. Uh, sometimes it doesn't take into account uh, fairness it doesn't take into account um, whether or not a particular candidate is uh, is deserving of a nomination or being greenlit. So those processes uh, determine who gets on a ballot, whether it's in a local riding association nomination um, or a leadership nomination. And I think I think what's happened with Patrick Brown in this particular case uh, should be a warning to uh, Canadians that perhaps we need to have more stringent rules and more defined rules. I, now, I don't want you to speculate on obviously the mindset of anybody else inside the party, but um, from the outside looking in, many of us are seeing the situation and we're simplifying it maybe too, maybe too much, but we, we, it, it, there does seem to be a sense out there that the Polyev, the, the Polyev camp was um, threat felt threatened by the, by the Brown campaign for whatever right. reason yeah. uh is that a are you because you're you're kind of like in the trenches with uh with with party members let's just say yes is yeah. is is there a sense like that is it is the party divided is it polarized is it just like a <clears throat> couple of smatterings from the edges what is the mood like in the party since this has happened and and what are people thinking and, and saying behind the scenes well i think behind the scenes so, so, well, first of all, for your viewers and for people who are who are listening or watching this podcast, um, you know, there's a famous baseball player who used to say they don't boo nobodies, right? So when when the Polyev team uh, had, you know, very targeted, directed attacks on Patrick Brown, at least in my mind, uh, that that was emblematic, or that was a a, a a little bit of a red flag that that told us that Patrick Brown was the only threat to Pierre Polyev's victory, that they perceived that Patrick Brown was the only one who could prevent them from winning on the third or fourth or fifth ballot. Um, uh, because you wouldn't be attacking people who aren't a threat. It's just a simple rule in politics. You never, never, ever attack somebody who is not a threat, but, might, but whose votes you might need on a second or a third ballot. So it seems to me that they knew, or they ought to have known, that Patrick Brown would be the only other candidate 
on the ballot, on the final ballot with them. Uh, so right. that's number one. Uh, number two uh, of your question, I think I think the issue is, um, how shall I put it? Uh, so when looking at who's responsible for why this all happened, I think people look for means, motive, and opportunity. So uh, did the Polyev team have motive? Well, absolutely they had motive. They've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks that, uh, that Patrick Brown is their number one target. Uh, so they had motive. Uh, did they have the means? Well, you know, campaign budgets, uh, if you read the, the rules, um, candidates are not allowed to spend more than $7 million. So did they have the financial means to do something? Well, one might argue that within a $7 million budget, and I don't know how their fundraising is going, but within a 6 or $7 million budget, one could definitely finance the takedown of, a, of yeah. somebody's opponent. And did they have the opportunity? Um, well, uh, you know, I'll let viewers judge for themselves. I'm not accusing the Polyev campaign of anything. I just think that there's a, there's a, for a lot of party members, uh, there's a strong sense that uh, this is not something that happened organically. Let's just put it that way. Well, also it leaves more questions than answers. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like there is no, there's, there, there's people that, uh, people like myself that like to think they know, you know, something about politics uh, finds, I, I find myself shaking my head because whenever I see a party or a political campaign, whether it's leadership campaign or a general election campaign, really kind of put the brakes on transparency and, uh, and being able to offer as much information as they can. Obviously I'm thinking that they're hiding something and, and that's right. just a natural way to think. But this situation, because of Brown's history, especially with the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party and all the things that happened when he was uh, ousted, I mean, he was going to be premier. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that if he remained leader, he was going to be the premier of Ontario. Correct. And, and they, they gutted that campaign. That's a, another kind of long story. But some of the same individuals that were allegedly responsible for gutting the provincial Patrick Brown political career were the same individuals that are involved in the Pierre Polyev camp. Like this is not, this is really inside baseball stuff, but sometimes you have to sort of lift the curtain in order to like read the situation. Is that not well, fair? Yeah. And, and I, I wouldn't just say that it's inside baseball. I would argue that it's also money ball. This is about, you know, who's connected to whom. Uh, and you've got to look at those, you know, if you, if you remember the film money ball, where yeah. uh, the statistical uh, anomalies matter. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think in, in this case, you've identified correctly that there are some interesting statistical anom anomalies about who's involved in the Polyev campaign versus who was involved in the takedown of Patrick Brown at the provincial level. But but let me also say this about, mm -hmm. about the rules. You know, a very small fraction of Canadians participate in uh, political parties, unfortunately. Um, but what all of the candidates have done, and I give full credit to, to Pierre Polyev, to, to, to Patrick Brown, to Jean Charest, to Leslin Lewis, uh, to, to Roman uh, Baber. Uh, they have recruited the highest number of members in the history of any political party. The, these numbers are incredible. And, and I think it says just as much about the disdain that Canadians have for the direction the, the, the government is going and the Liberal Party, uh, as much as it does uh, speak to the high quality and the high caliber of candidates that the Conservative Party has been able to attract to this race. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you, you cannot negate the numbers. Okay? However, however, what is really important is that this victory for whomever not be a Pyrrhic victory. It can't be the type of victory that they say, well, if it, not, if it weren't for the takedown of Patrick Brown, uh, you wouldn't have been the leader of the party. And I think that, that, that the Polyev people are probably going to rue the day that Patrick Brown was removed from the campaign uh, because uh, his leadership and his victory will always be questioned by a large segment of the Canadian population and a large segment of the members of the party. I think members of the party are going to feel um, something in their gut. It's emotional. You know, there's a saying that all politics is local. I also believe all politics is emotional. And yeah. I think that emotionally, uh, a lot of conservative party members are, are not, this will not sit well in their gut. 
And regarding the whistleblower, so I, I mean, full disclosure, I had dealings with her during the first Patrick Brown scandal just because she, uh, I don't really care. I'll just say it. Uh, she was uh, friends with the with the young woman who allegedly, um, not allegedly, who, who was making complaints of sexual misconduct against Vic Fidelli. Um, right. I tweeted out the um, the actual statement before the press could do it because, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. And, you know, and she, she, she struck me as a woman, uh, as a person who wanted to be, who liked the idea of being in the thick of big decisions. Like right. there was like an adrenaline thing with her. You're talking she, about uh, Debbie Chaudin. Yes, I am. And she was, uh, she was a Patrick Brown supporter. She called the, you know, she called members of the conservative party, like uh, Fideli and Hillier and um, Lisa McLeod, the coup crew. Like she was all over this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, and I understand at the time, it seemed like her motivation was an admiration for Patrick Brown. Right. This time, you know, she turned her sights against him and it didn't feel like, first of all, I felt a little bit hypocritical because uh, I had a uh, former Harper staffer um, fill me in on something and, and I checked it out. And, and now it, this is one of those things where it, it's difficult to prove that a third party is paying you while you're working on a campaign unless you basically confess, right? right. Or rat on right. yourself. That's and, and, and so when I, uh, when I found out that information, I tweeted this. Um, the P Poliev campaign and the Conservative Party claimed that Deb Jodwin was being paid by a third party to work on Brown's campaign. Meanwhile, Paul right. Sutherland is a lobbyist being paid by Hill and Knowlton Canada while working on Polyev's campaign. I worded that a little mangled. The grammar's not great. But what the implication was is that um, he's being paid to work on Polyev's campaign and that payment is not coming from the campaign. It's coming from this lobbyist group called Hill and Knowlton. Right. Right. I don't know if that is true or not, but I've been it, it has been confirmed by multiple sources that I have had. Right. What is the process then for that to be scrutinized? Well, somebody has to file a complaint. Somebody has to file a formal complaint, but the complaint has to have evidence. And I think I think this is where we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole. Like, what is the evidence that Debbie Joudin has? Apparently, there are text messages between her and Patrick Brown. Um, but, you know, uh, in this age of um, uh, Photoshop and other... Uh, design programs. Um, it's very easy to manufacture a conversation between people uh, to make it look real, to post it on Facebook, uh, to put it out on Twitter and other social media platforms. And I'm not suggesting in any way, shape or form that Debbie Jodin has done anything wrong. I'm simply saying that that's why we have a system of, you know, of natural justice where you get to examine evidence you get to cross-examine uh, the evidence. You get to examine witnesses. You get to cross-examine witnesses. And then somebody, an impartial person, gets to come to a finding of fact. They get to say, I'm convinced by the evidence presented to me that this uh, printout or copy of, a, um, of, a, uh, of an exchange, a text message exchange, um, is an attempt by Mr. Brown to... Uh, circumvent the election finance laws. Or I am not convinced that this text message exchange between Patrick Brown and Debbie Jourdain is an attempt to circumvent, circumvent election finance rules. There is no such process. So essentially, uh, Leoc has found Patrick Brown guilty until proven innocent. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we were joking a little bit about this the other day. Um, you know, if I get a speeding ticket, I have, I have more rights in getting a speeding ticket than I do if I'm running for Prime Minister of Canada or leader of the Conservative Party. You mean when it comes to fighting should, it? When it comes to fighting it. Like, I have more right. I have the right to go before yeah. a judge and, and call evidence and cross-examine the police officer. And Patrick Brown hasn't been given any of those uh, rights in, in this particular case. He was not told, as I understand uh, the name of the accuser, he was not told what the evidence was um, against him. And he was not able to, uh, you know, test the veracity of that evidence. And I think those are very simple, simple rules that anyone uh, would expect of a, of a system that, that where, where up to $7 million is being spent by and raised by candidates. 
and where the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada could very well be the next prime minister of the country. Yeah, um, and I heard uh, a conservative strategist uh, the other day say that, you know, whether you believe these charges or accusations or not, there is only one way forward for the Polyev campaign, and that is complete and utter transparency about everything that right. led them to led the party to make the decision right. um, to to oust him. Uh, I also want to read a, a an excerpt from what Warren Kinsella wrote yesterday. He wrote an sure. open letter to uh, to the to to the whistleblower Deb. Jo- How do you pronounce your last name? Joadin. I believe Joadin. it's uh, yeah yeah it's French. Okay, yeah, I'm francophone. Know. Yeah. I'm very uh, pasty suburban white. I have no idea how to pronounce you know, anything. With a name like Di Fiore, I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, it's the only thing I can say with an accent. There you go. <laughs> it really is. But this is what Kinsella wrote, um, and I thought it was actually kind of poignant. So there's been an unverified claim that you were being paid by someone to assist the Brown campaign. But since Jesus was a little fella, companies and associations and unions have been lending people to political campaigns. Hell, the NDP wouldn't exist if they didn't accept labor from labor. As long as it is disclosed and as long as it is within a certain limit, it's fine. Everyone does it. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Can you, for those of us who are not um, politically expedient, can you can you sort of dim that down even a little bit more? What that what what Kinsella is saying there, and and how important yeah. it is. So so he, let's take the example of the NDP or the Liberals. So uh, for the last fifteen or twenty years, um, Ontario Teachers Federation, um, uh, ETFO, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, they'll release. They'll basically say to the Toronto District School Board, we want you to le- release Miss Miller, uh, who's a teacher, to come do union work. And then Miss Miller uh, doesn't go to school that day. A, a uh, substitute teacher or somebody who's on a long-term occasional list goes in and teaches her grade three class. And then Miss Miller goes out and works on the campaign of Stephen Del Duca, or go and works on the campaign of uh, Marit Stiles, uh, the NDP member of provincial parliament in Davenport. And donations, financial donations from unions uh, and, and corporations are not allowed, but they are allowed to send employees who are normally employed by them to go and work on your campaign uh, for a period of time. And it's essentially unregulated because we don't, you know, you, you could be a, a $15 an hour employee, uh, or in the case of Ontario, and now $15.50 an hour employee. Or you could be a thousand dollar an hour uh, contractor who happens to be providing uh, uh, services to a a company or a union. And then you can go and provide those services or similar type services uh, to an election campaign. Uh, And in this case, to a leadership campaign. So while you cannot take direct financial contributions, people are allowed to send their employees to go and work um, for a candidate. And it's not really regulated and it's not reported. Um, so, but you're also, as a campaign, able to hire a company. So we don't know because, you know, and I don't know, I have to confess, whether that the company that Debbie Joandin was uh, allegedly being paid by, uh, we don't know if they were hired by the, by the campaign to do any work whatsoever. So they, they could have, they, so you could be a supplier. You know, you could hire my company to help run your campaign. Uh, you give me a large uh, lump sum of money. And then what I do is I go out and hire people to go work on your campaign. That's also allowed. So there are some 
how should I put it? There's some minutia in here that that matters, um, and it's one of the reasons why uh, what Debbie Joadin did and what Patrick Brown is alleged to have done may not contravene the elections uh, finance rules, uh, elections Canada finance rules. It may, in fact, be perfectly legal, but we won't know that until uh, months and months from now when Elections Canada finalizes uh, their investigation. In the meantime, in the meantime, uh, Patrick Brown is suffering the consequences of a process uh, that doesn't allow him to test the evidence and and to prove to um, an impartial body that he's innocent. Elections Canada also. Um from where i'm standing it feels like they're being used um in in a sense to to make it impossible for patrick brown to get back into the race because how long it takes the investigation to go would elections canada be in violation of their mandate if they fast-tracked the investigation and gave us a conclusion next week no i don't think they would be uh, in fact in fact and again and you and i had this conversation uh, prior to this <clears throat> podcast to this to this broadcast you know there needs to be a real rethink of the rules. There needs to be a real rethink of, you know, uh, if there is a violation, again, I go back to this point. If we, if the Conservatives happen to be the governing party, then in essence, uh, 11 people in a room somewhere in Ottawa, or I guess on Zoom, have decided that one person, despite there being 680,000 members of the Conservative Party, but these 11 people are deciding that one person is not eligible to be the leader of the party and thus prime minister of Canada. There ought to be some mechanism in law that allows political parties to refer these matters to Elections Canada and for Elections Canada to expedite um, investigations and come to some preliminary decision or final decision or some way of allowing people to have their name cleared. Because, you know, and, and I disagree when, when the Patrick Brown camp say, well, 150,000 people are disenfran being disenfranchised. I disagree with them. I think 680,000 people are being disenfranchised. I think all party members, whether they're poly, you know, a person who's a poly of supporter has the right to know that they're supporting a guy who's uh, honest and, and gone about winning this leadership the right way. They deserve that. They don't need they don't need to have the cloud hanging over the candidate that they're supporting. And so while the while the 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 Patrick Brown people are saying that this is manufactured by uh, Pierre Polyev and Polyev's people are saying Patrick Brown's dirty. Um, it's the 680,000 members who need to know the truth. And I think that that's part of the problem. The, the slow process of elections Canada has been weaponized against Patrick Brown. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. Cause that's, that, that's how I feel about it too. Um, and also uh, the, the, you know, he, um, if, if Deb is ever put under oath somehow, um, yeah. she's going to have to deal with this person. Um, yes. Marie, Marie Hanin. I know this isn't professional, but every time I see her picture, I just have to say that she is probably the most, beautiful and smart woman on the planet <laughs> she makes me there feel weak <laughs> she really does weak at the like, knees. she has this fierce intellect and at the same time it's just like i would never fight her you know what i mean like <laughs> well you know so... this isn't this isn't a can this is not a candid photograph you're posting this is a this is a shot that was uh either done by the media or done by her professional photographer uh it's intended to make you go weak at the knees so Listen, uh, I, I just yeah. when you combine when you combine someone like a woman that like obviously is like super super intelligent super tough right. and then really attractive I'm just like I, I don't care I'll be her stable boy I don't give a shit <laughs> She's there, well I, I have I of course have no comment on that but but I will say this um, you should be a podcaster man you can say anything you want go ahead Rob. yes yeah well you can never be a candidate uh, for any party if you great if you, thank you it's if you, you just say sold the you position of podcaster even more for me there you go. Yeah. So, so look, uh, she has a reputation. Uh, she has a persona. Um, it's, I, I think because of Patrick Brown's past, it's helpful that she's a woman. Uh, yeah. it's helpful that she, uh, has been involved in a number of high profile cases. Um, I think it's helpful that, uh, for Patrick Brown, I think it's helpful that, uh, uh, Almost everybody in Canada, you know, if you want to, in the panoply of lawyers, uh, the name Heenan and Greenspan are probably the ones that come to mind. And I don't know that many people 
could name any other, you know, from coast to coast to coast, could name any other lawyer, um, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so she has a reputation. Um, I, I'm not sure that the the members of the Conservative Party LIOC committee are intimidated by that, but I certainly think it helps affect public opinion. And I and I also think Patrick Brown won in the court of public opinion this past week. I, I think the party looks a little bit confused. I think the uh, Patrick Brown's opponent. Uh, main opponent, Pierre Polyev, um, uh, lost some ground. I won't say that he looks complicit, but he certainly lost some ground in terms of, uh, of people's uh, perce perception of him. Uh, yeah. And I think um, it means that, uh, you know, on a go forward basis, Patrick Brown is going to have an easy time of it if he decides to run for mayor of Brampton again. Are... are is uh, is it possible for one campaign, uh, one leadership campaign, to call for an audit of the memberships of another leader, leadership yes. candidate? Oh yeah, yeah. So so in the process, uh, campaigns were given the list, and then uh, from the time they were given the list, they were given ninety six hours to one confirm to make sure that the names that they had submitted had made it to the list, and two um, to challenge memberships. You know, so if you if you knew that uh, James DeFiori uh, didn't live on Main Street in Toronto, uh, but he's listed as living on uh, Bay Street in Toronto. You could say, wait a second, James DeFiori, I, I have uh, I have his LinkedIn account and it's got his address here, or he's using a business address for his membership and, it, and he should be using his residential address. So parties, uh, uh, candidates had the opportunity over a 96 hour period to do that. The Patrick Brown campaign, uh, three hours prior to the list being released, were told that they weren't going to get the list and didn't get the list and didn't get even didn't even get to see um, their memberships uh, on that list to confirm that they're on that list. Um, so it's and I know people are saying, well, why why wouldn't they have a copy of their own list? Well, you know, uh, each campaign probably has thousands and thousands of volunteers working on their behalf across the country, um, and it's hard to know uh, whether you know John Smith from Burnaby submitted the 50 uh, memberships that he collected from his 50 friends and neighbors um, and to make sure that they got in on time. So uh, the, the, there's a, a reconciliation process that candidates do internally. And then there's a, an opportunity to audit the membership of other people's uh, members. You don't know whose they are. Like you don't, you don't necessarily know that these are, uh, you know, peer memberships or these are uh, Leslie Lewis memberships, but certainly um, you get to challenge memberships of, of people that you think or, or know or ought to know are, are not bona fide members or haven't paid for their membership. Yeah, I know that uh, in the past, um, especially at the provincial level, and, and, and it happened to Patrick Brown, I believe, the last time as well, um, where uh, ethnic-sounding names will often have, will often have a, an anglicized spelling. Yes. And and so if the person's photo ID on their driver's license, if that name doesn't match the name that they used to sign the membership papers, right. then it gets disqualified. Right. And right. that was actually used as a tactic from uh, in order to, to try to water down the membership drive of a yes. leader who was either in contention or whatever. Is that, right. is that fair? Yes, that's fair to say. Listen, I, I had a person from the South Asian community work for me when I was a city councillor, and uh, his name was Vic Gupta. He's, he's gone on to... Uh, Work oh, for, yeah. yeah, he's gone on to work for uh, for John Tory, and now he's uh, heading up, I think, Create To. Um, but his legal name is Solil, hmm. but everybody knows him as Vic Gupta, right? right. So Vic, Vic or Vicky is a, a term of endearment. It's a nickname. It's a shortening of a name. Um, and so Vic Gupta might submit his membership as Vic Gupta, um, and I don't mean to out Vic Gupta as a you know as a conservative or anything like that. But he <laughs> ran in those circles in the past. Um, but his, his driver's license will, will say Solil, uh, Gupta. Yeah. so, um, it happens. And, and, and there's another point too, and this is really bothersome. And I think that you're going to hear Patrick Brown talk about this in the coming weeks. Um, the party made a determination and, and said so publicly that they are mailing out the ballots of the existing party membership first, and then mailing out the ballots of new members second um what is, is the... very well it's peculiar that why wouldn't you randomly mail out all of the memberships at the same time and what what would be if someone were to speculate 
what would the speculation be as to a motivation to do it like that? Uh, if one were to speculate, one would suggest that they're they're giving uh, new members from ethnic groups less time to cast a ballot, uh, uh, yeah. uh, less time to be corralled into casting their vote. You know, like it's 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 a challenge. You know, yeah. it's like and then again in, in context for people, it's six hundred eighty thousand people um and six or seven volunteer groups of campaigns trying to get them to cast their ballot by mail right uh, yeah and there's a lot of rumors happening right now too that i i read something the the first of all i read two things one thing sure. um was that that wasn't there something coming from the polyev camp saying that you need to re sign you need to sign up again because there was like some sort of malfunction right what, so what that? Uh, many members <laughs> got an email weird? Yeah, many people got an email uh, from the Polyev campaign uh, wrongly uh, telling them to uh, reconfirm their membership and re-sign up. So there's an argument that the 311,000 members that the Polyev campaign has claimed as their members is not truly accurate because it's believed that they got a lot of people to double register through their mm -hmm. portal. Um, I spoke with somebody yesterday who told me she registered through the Polyev portal but she was voting for Patrick Brown. So she she registered her daughter uh, and her two granddaughters who now live with her uh, for votes. And they just did it through the Polyev campaign because she was smart enough to know that she could vote for whoever she wanted. It didn't matter which portal um, she accessed right. the party uh, membership form. Um, so as an example, uh, she before votes that would be voting for Patrick on the first ballot and not for Polyev Polyev people would claim her as a member, right? Yeah. Is there any weight to the over to, to winning the candidacy um, based on membership drives? What is the per like? It, does that count as as part of the uh, um, weighted score or whatever you want to call it that the candidate no, gets? No, no. So so think of it think of it like electoral college votes. So every riding, regardless of how many members are in that riding, is worth a hundred points. Okay. So. Again, let's pick a Toronto riding where uh, conservatives don't have a chance. Davenport riding. Um, so if there are 100 members in Davenport riding, um, having 60 members uh, vote for you, let's say you're Patrick Brown, having 60 members vote for you gives you 60 points. Okay. Calgary Southwest. You could have 10,000 members. That riding is still worth 100 points. And in order to get 60, you have to have 6,000 people come out and vote for you. So the 60 people in the Davenport riding have uh, the same amount of influence on the outcome as 6,000 people in Calgary Southwest. And that was done in order to give ridings um, a level of equality. So if, if Pierre Polyev has 6,000 members in Calgary Southwest, uh, and Patrick Brown has 60 members in Davenport come out and vote for him. And if they're all, and the, if the, the numbers are 10,000 and 100, respectively, then Patrick Brown gets the same number of points as Pierre Polyev. That's why the 311,000 number doesn't matter. It's about voter efficiency. Right. Right. It's yeah. about which writings do you have the right number of members. Um, if you think about it, uh, most Canadians don't know this and, and should know this. Um, the Conservatives won the popular vote in Canada. Yeah. Right? Like w the Conservatives got, I thought it was six or 700,000 more votes than the Liberals. The problem is that those votes were not efficiently distributed in the right ridings in order to win the most number of seats. So the That's overall right. number doesn't matter. Where those votes come from matters. That and happens a lot. It happens a lot. It yeah. happens a lot. Yeah. That and, plurality and then, thing is, is, is right. One in of the, the first past the post yeah. system, you, you, you can, you can, you can have a 35% of the popular vote and then get an outweighted number of seats in, in the provincial or federal legislature, right? You can, you can get, you know, 60%, 70% of the seats, but only get 35% of the popular vote. But that's because of the efficiency of where your vote is distributed. And that's why campaigns matter. Campaigns so, really matter. They do matter. Um, uh, Leanne in the comments uh, asked a, asked a, a good question. Um, I, I haven't even thought of this because all I've been thinking about is the process, but maybe you can sort of answer this question. 
what makes Patrick Brown's candidacy attractive to some conservatives? Well, I, I think it's, I, I think he rightly stated that he's an urban mayor. He's a GTA mayor who, and when he was leader of the Ontario PC party, he won seats in urban areas. He won uh, ridings in Toronto. Uh, and that was a rare thing for conservatives for a long time in, in the provincial legislature. And he has a way of, uh, of attracting people from ethnic groups. And I hate using the word ethnic groups, but racialized groups. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Um, I think for the conservatives, they've been ignored for a long time. Um, I think the, even the provincial party, if you look at what Doug Ford has done uh, and being a member of the black community, he made sure he placed, um, he placed members of the black community in ridings where they can win. Mm. And we have an historic number of people from the black community win seats for the governing PCs. It's the first time in the history of the PC party in Ontario that they've had members of their caucus who are from the black community. But it requires a a determination and a decision to make that happen. It requires you to say, I'm going to make sure that we do as much as we can to nominate somebody from that community in a riding that I believe we can win. Now, there was a fourth candidate who didn't win, and that was uh, uh, Chief Saunders um, in Don Don Valley West. He wasn't successful. But had he been successful, he would have been the fourth member of the black community for the first time in the caucus of the Ontario PC party and the Ontario PC government. Um, So, you know, Charmaine Williams, um, uh, David Smith and uh, Patrice Barnes from uh, from Durham region um, are those three new members of the caucus. That's the appeal. The appeal of Patrick Brown is um, he's interested in winning so that we can, you know, be government and make good decisions. Yeah. Um, and it's not just about being ideologically tied or ideologically um, anchored uh, to one set of beliefs. We, we've got to find common ground. Um, and I, to some extent, I agree with Leslie Lewis. Like we've got to, we've got to talk to each other. Social conservatives and fiscal conservatives can actually live in the same party. Um, and I think I think that's what his attraction is. He understands that. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because a, a lot of people would say that the country itself, and especially conservatives, are are leaning far more to the right. I think that's misleading a little yes. bit because I think that the right is really loud right now. Like the far right is really loud right now. Right. But t- the perception is obviously most important. And if that is the perception, and then you have a guy who's literally trying to put the progressive back into the former PC Party of Canada, right? Um, it it can be seen as 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 uh, fruitless um, or it can be seen as, as, as like a mission impossible type thing. But those are the kinds of political moments that I think count the most, because I think that people would be often surprised as what can happen, especially when you're living in a fluid era, like we are, and it's been fluid since yes. 2020. Listen, a year ago, uh, Doug Ford wouldn't have been elected as uh, as uh, premier of Ontario. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, Eight months ago, he wouldn't have been elected as premier of Ontario. But um, campaigns matter. Um, uh, public opinion is dynamic and changes. Um, and as I say to candidates, when I've done training for candidates, I, you know, uh, I'll say, congratulations, you're a candidate. And the election is going to be a year or a year and a half from now. And you will win as long as your party leader is popular that week. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. 60 weeks from now, as long as Stephen Harper is popular, you're going to win in your riding because he might not be popular in your riding. He might be popular in another riding. And that's really hard to take for local candidates, but it's the truth. So if you have a party leader who's not popular at the time that people are actually making the decision and marking their ballot, then you can't win. Mm-hmm. But but that being said, again, I'm, I just pulled up on my computer and sorry for the shaky, uh, shaky oh, okay. desk here. Um Look, the Liberals got 32.6% of the popular vote in the last election, and the Conservatives got 33.7% of the popular vote. Um, And that just goes back to my point about uh, vote efficiency. So that's the other element. So is is Pierre Polyav, uh, with his proximity to uh, trucker convoy organizers, 
uh, and what have you, is that going to appeal to people in urban settings? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know either. I, I grew up in the Golden Horseshoe. I grew up in Whippy, and <clears throat> it does feel like uh, the, that area, the suburbs of Toronto, um, are are pr- pretty enamored by um, by convoy stuff and COVID related polarization. Like the, the, they, there is a lot of conservatives. Some of them are, are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Some of them are. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot, but the, but a lot of the moderates have gone towards uh, conservatism, which is fine to do what you want, but it just. I mean, if Polyev has a chance to win, he's going to need a lot of seats in that area. And, yes. and I don't think it's outlandish to say that he'll get them is all I'm saying. No, but, but, but those, but, you know, those are seats that are held by, by conservatives, right? Those are seats that are held by, you know, Aaron O'Toole uh, is a conservative in Durham region. Um, and by ostensibly by all measures, he's a, he's a red Tory, uh, yeah. notwithstanding his, his leadership campaign, um, uh, suggestion that he was far more right wing than he than he actually was or or historically was, well, and strongly resembles the A and W guy. I don't know if you remember that guy from the commercials. Yes, it looks like him a lot. I do. Now you're making me laugh. Yeah, so 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 here's the question: the, the the question to voters at the end of the day is, um, you know, political parties are worth fighting for. Being involved in political parties is important. It impacts who we're going to see on ballots. So again. Leaders determine who gets to be on the ballot, um, helps to shape who's going to be and who they attract to be on the ballot in your local riding. Um, for those that are watching who might say, you know, who cares? This this does matter. It matters who the leader of a political party is because it's going to determine uh, the, the, the type of candidate, quality of candidate, um, the political philosophy of the candidate that they're going to get, that they're going to attract uh, to the party. Uh, which will impact on who your local member of provincial parliament might be or who the candidate will be. Um, and if Polyev is on his way to victory, then it's going to determine uh, the types of laws and policies that the government of Canada are going to be uh, propagating and promoting. Rob Davis, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, we'll talk soon. Thank you, man. I hope so. Okay. Cheers. That was Rob Davis. Um, I just want to reiterate one thing that I think is really important about this conversation, and that is this. God damn it. She's so fine and really smart and all that stuff, most importantly. But Jesus, she's fine. Marie Hanin, if, if you're listening out there, um, you don't have to come to my podcast. I'll just be your butler. <laughs> Whatever you need, I'm there. Um, listen, uh, it was good to have Rob on to actually unpack some of that stuff, because I think that what we're going to see in the next two weeks is uh, a party that has to either reconcile with itself the lack of transparency that it has shown with the Patrick Brown situation or a party that is going to double down and keep digging themselves into this hole where their image is just sullied. Um, and especially uh, from the perspective of people within the party. So that is that. I am pretty close to booking Warren Kinsella this week, which if you know anything about me, you're probably a little bit shocked because Warren and I have not been buds over the uh, past X amount of years. But bygones are made to be bygones, I would say. And um, he did write a piece the other day that uh, that mentioned me and there were no swear words surrounding my name. And so I took that as a as a gesture of good faith almost. And I emailed Warren to see if he wanted to come on. And I, and he, he gave me a maybe, but, but I'm telling you, there was a time not too long ago where that email probably wouldn't have been responded to. Um, but I don't care about stuff anymore. I, I don't care. Anything that happened pre pandemic to me is completely meaningless. Big shout out to the mad flower harem. You guys were on fire today. And uh, hopefully we're going to see you this week. Also with the Adam Scorgy thing. Oh, and Adam Scorgy with the um, culture. What is it called? Uh, Culture High, his weed documentary. This Thursday, uh, Rob Kaviklian and I, defense attorney uh, for, um, well, he's actually our lawyer as well. But Rob is going to be on, and we are going to start a twice a month show called Heinous Cases. And Rob is going to be sort of our legal expert as we peruse some of the more famous and infamous cases in Canadian history. This Thursday, our initial case is going to be a, an extensive deep dive into the Carla Homolka case. Uh, Carla Homolka, as you probably know, 
was sentenced to 12 years in prison for her role in the brutal rapes and murders of three girls, uh, Leslie Mahaffey, Kristen French, and Tammy Hamalka, her sister. And what we are going to do is just take a look at that case from top to bottom and talk a little bit about why she was given the deal, why that deal could have been rightfully taken away, and and a few other things. So I'm really excited about that. We're going to, again, do that once every couple of weeks. And so um, hopefully you guys can tune in for that. And in the meantime, thank you for watching Blackballed, and I will see you next time. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. The podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares. It's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.